Okay, uh, welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. My name is Kyle Diaz. And I'm Ryan Harrington. And we got a very special guest with us this week, uh, Jill Sergi. Hi, folks. So, Jill, I was looking, and you were last on the podcast. When do you think? Oh, yeah. See, I, I actually... Know. August 11, 2011. Really? Mm-hmm. It has been almost almost a full two years. I actually... I would have guessed. I would have guessed sometime two years ago, probably. Um, but it's it's hard to believe you guys have been on that long. It's a long time. I know. You. I mean, you're telling us. Yeah. I, it blows my mind. I kind of... This is our 36th episode. Wow. And if you figure that each episode is probably an hour and a half long on average, that's like a lot of just us talking. Like over the course of two years, that's like almost two full days that you can just listen to Ryan and I talk. What's crazy is how much stuff we record that obviously gets cut, which is yeah. probably about an equal amount. Yeah, or maybe even more. Who, who really knows? Yeah. Well, I remember the first time we did this, we actually spent, and this is a long time before we get started, I remember. I'm sure. There was some taco eating. Oh, yeah, you listened to us eat tacos for a while. Yeah, we, we, start, I started, I start, we started just like, don't call me until you're done with the tacos, because it's just such a tease, first of all, because I never have tacos to eat when you guys have tacos to eat. Yeah. And I was just, just like, munch, munch, that. munch. All right, so our uh, front end segment this week is um, least favorite uh, TV finale. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, who wants to go first? We can jump in here. Jill, maybe you want to kick us off since you're the guest this week. Let our guest lead us out. Well, um, with pleasure, or should I say, with displeasure, um, because the one that I picked is a doozy. Um, It's the Bones season four finale. Um, It's called The End in the Beginning, and um, I I no longer watch Bones, but at the time I was watching pretty faithfully and tuning in every week. Um, and the season in particular was known for kind of ratcheting up the um, sexual tension between Booth and Bones. And um, Hart Hansen, the creator, had basically been teasing um, throughout the season, you know, they're finally going to get together. You will see some action. Like, it won't be anything stupid or silly. They're not going to just, like, explain it away. It will be actual, like they will act on their feelings. And so people were like rapidly waiting for this finale. Um, and what we got was kind of terrible. So the setup is, is the episode takes place in like an alternate, it, it seems to take place in an alternate universe where Booth and, and Brennan basically own a nightclub. Um, yeah. And all of the, um, the squints, the people who work in the lab are all like have, you know, odd jobs in the nightclub. And, um, the the story is is basically there's a body found um in the nightclub and um cam who is uh um she does uh, all the autopsies in the lab Mm -hmm. um she's now the detective and booth's brother is her partner and they're investigating this murder and it's supposed to be like or the setup is is such that you know booth and and brennan are like sort of innocent victims of a crime and um, the investigation happens around them instead of them doing the investigation. But um, I'm getting off track because, quite <laughs> frankly, this episode is so weird. It's so weird. None of the characters act like themselves, and it seems like um, the writers were really intent on, I don't know, like making odd winks at the audience. Like, we all know that, you know, Brennan isn't scared of dead bodies normally, and it wouldn't it be so weird if this a universe where she was, you know... Uh, the owner of a nightclub and you know a murder happened and she was flummoxed and didn't know what to do um so it's 
it's just such an odd scenario and and the and the the most egregious part of it probably is is all that the teasing um that Hart Hansen did previously um and we get a a Booth and Brennan hookup in the very first few minutes of the episode um but it turns out that they're married in this alternate universe so it, it's just like it's it's just this bizarre setup um and then finally, to top it all off at the end, they solve this mystery, whatever, who cares. Um, at the very <laughs> end, it's revealed that the entire scenario has basically been a fever dream, or not a fever dream, but um, uh, cooked up by Booth, who is actually in the hospital um, uh. in a coma. And he wakes up, and, uh, and he's like, oh, man, I had such a weird dream. Um, and, you know, Brennan is, of course, by his side. And she's like, oh, my gosh, we thought you'd never wake up. And then he looks at her, uh, you know, head all bandaged. And he's like, who are you? Cut to black. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> are you kidding me? And I remember seeing this in real time. And it was just uh, galling that um, we had waited this entire time to see some kind of payoff. And, and instead we get, you know, coma sex. It was just it, like married coma sex. It was just... It was, uh, you know, months of teasing followed by just a thud of a of a finale. So you gotta wonder That's... what what the writers were thinking. Like when you pitch that story, like I feel like any reasonable person would be like, "What? Why would we do that? Like, there's no reason to do this whatsoever." Like, no. like I, you know, I can understand maybe from the actress perspective, it's a chance for them to step out of their normal character, have some fun with it. You know, like. Maybe yeah. I can see that from their perspective, but from the writers and showrunners' perspective, it's just like, wh- in what universe did you think that something like that was going to not just be jumping the shark? Yeah, right. I, I have no idea. Um, and especially because, I mean, it seems like maybe they did it with good intentions because there are like a lot of winky in-jokes to the, the Bones, um, like previous jokes past. Like they they reference a couple... Um, like there's there's a, a band that tries out in the nightclub and, and the name of the band is like a um the name of one of the uh serial killers in mm. a previous season. So it's like kind of jokey trying to fit in some references to the past show as maybe like a reward to, to fans who kind of know what they're talking about or whatever, to basically make them feel like they're clever and know what's going on and, and you know, writers trying to think they can kind of um clever up the uh the proceedings. But it was just it was. It felt like a slap in the face. It's pretty bad. <laughs> wow. So. I'm sorry. What season? Uh, what uh, season? That, this is season four. Okay. And Bones is in what season? Like eight now. Exactly. And actually, I was trying to think when I stopped watching, and it may have been after this finale. Wow. So it yeah. actually drove you away from a show yeah. that you previously liked. Yes. The it's all a dream cop out. Is it seems so. Like frustrating and pointless. Oh yeah, well, and like everybody should know by this point. You know, I mean, it's happened enough times that everyone knows that it's just a bullshit way to like avoid having to actually write an ending or explain exactly. what's happening. So, I, you know, I can't understand how anybody could pitch that with a straight face, like in this day and age. And I think the problem with it being and being a uh, well, I guess like ostensibly not even an ending since the series kept going mm-hmm. is that everything that happened in it is really a waste of everyone's time. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Oh, and even better, I forgot. I actually I did watch the premiere of the of season 5 and it actually turns out that he wasn't even he doesn't even have amnesia. He just said, "Who are you?" 
He was it's just, just like a throwaway line. So they even they even tease the fact that he had amnesia, as if that's anything worth teasing about. Who are you? Oh, you're my friend Bones. That's right. How's it going? Ate <laughs> 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 my blood. Like they got together in the. Uh, in the uh, you know after the episode aired and they're like all right guys we got to sit down and write this season uh, five. Um, Man, I'll wh- where were we? Let's let's take a look and, and and see how that last episode shaped up. I don't really remember. And then they watched it and they're like, oh shit, we should just throw away everything that happened here and pretend like it never existed. What if they were like, oh shit, let's just turn the rest of the series about them owning a nightclub. <laughs> I know. I don't know. I don't know what they what they could possibly write worse. Because like, what I even wrote down. I heard this, and I actually rewatched this episode recently. Um, I you know fell on uh, fell on my own sword for you guys. Um, one of the lines that Brennan actually says is, or to Booth um, after like you know his grisly murder, she's like, "I'm glad we're nightclub owners and not crime solvers." That is the line. Almost. <laughs> I can't. I can't. That is. It's like you have your main character being thankful that she isn't the person who they've shown her for the last four seasons to be. Yeah. Yep. It's like, and whoa, somehow they- fantastic. Thanks for making us feel like idiots. All right. Uh, so, Ryan, what's your pick? Um, my pick is the series finale. And so I guess it would, I think it's season nine, if I remember correctly, of uh, Seinfeld. Mm, I was curious if this was going to be where you went with this. Uh, I mean, I, I think I've talked to you at least about this before. Um, Seinfeld was probably one of the first shows that I actually really liked and watched on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was like, you know, eight, nine years old watching a nine o'clock NBC sitcom, but I watched it like every week. I had seen every episode. I knew everything about it, but everything about, and I think, and a lot of critics, once it came out, um, agree, like the series finale just kind of sucked. (laughs) Um, I feel like it amounted to a little more than a glorified clip show. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I don't know. Have you seen it? I have Um, seen it. Yeah. Yeah, so the basic premise is, like, uh, Jerry, like, a couple seasons back had pitched, uh, it was, like, a meta thing where he pitches an, the concept of a sitcom to NBC, and they, they eventually pass on it, and then in the series finale, they're like, actually, we'll give it a green light, and so they go on, like, uh, a celebratory uh, trip on a plane, and they they have to land in like uh, some small town in Rhode Island or something for maintenance issues, and they basically get arrested for, um, what is it called, like a a Good Samaritan law, yeah. where they're like making fun of someone being carjacked, and so they get arrested <laughs> for not helping that guy, and the whole rest of the episode is about. Like bringing back all of these old uh, characters throughout the seasons to testify to like what kind of people they were, and so it's like you know, in a way, like a nice way for the fans throughout the series to see all of these old people who've had it memorable moments. You know, uh, like Soup Nazi uh, comes back, Soup and Nazi, uh, Babu. The guy, don't the Amar um, guys come back? 
I think so. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the the woman from um, uh, the episode where they they have the contest. Um, what's her name? She was in, she was on Frasier. Anyways, they have you know all of the old people come back, but you know Seinfeld. When you really think about it, like a lot, especially the later scenes, the plots were not super realistic. Mm-hmm. But this, like the the whole idea of them getting arrested and thrown in jail for making fun of a guy, it just seemed so absurd that it was that it took me out of the moment. And then, like the whole last half, just being like this again, this like clip show where nothing happens. I just see old footage. It's, it was a, it was like I feel like it was the first time that I was ever really angry at TV for wasting my time. Mm. Did they have? Um, I, I kind of don't recall. I remember seeing the finale. I don't really. Um, I can I can think of a couple episodes that I've seen. I didn't really watch it that religiously. But um, did they have anything if they needed? I mean, from what I, I mean, obviously, like it's it's a show about nothing, obviously. Um, but. Uh, did they have anything that they kind of needed to wrap up or that people wanted to see wrapped up? I mean, not that I, I can't recall no, anything. because, but. I mean, there was not... Seinfeld, there was never really a lot of continuity. I mean, there was continuity, but there was never really overarching plot lines, per se. Yeah. Nothing like, uh, you know, other like Bones or something. Yeah. Um, Where they would have, like a like, a case of the week, but they would also have this, like season-long yeah. overarching mystery yeah. they were working on in parallel. There was nothing really like that in Seinfeld. So they they just wanted a, a, a grand farewell. They didn't necessarily need to tie things up. Yeah. But I guess they, they needed a way to make it seem like uh, this was the end. Yeah. I think the other thing that you touched on, Ryan, is that this was a really like a television event. Like, it was basically the most anticipated... Uh, season or a series finale since maybe like MASH or something. Um, it's either MASH or Cheers, I forget. Yeah, where like, you know, uh, people people made a big deal. I remember I did not watch Seinfeld at that age, but like my parents like made a special point to like sit down in front of the TV and watch it that night. It was like on the covers of TV guides and stuff. Um, I didn't see it for a couple of years, um, you know, until I was like in high school or something watching Seinfeld on, on uh, reruns. And, and I had heard about it was like infamous by this point like as a terrible uh series finale and so when i watched it i was kind of like yeah i mean that wasn't it wasn't amazing but it didn't like make me angry like i wasn't i didn't really mind and i and i you know liked the tie back to the first scene of the series ever with the button and stuff so i mm. for a long time i didn't really uh like understand all of the animus toward it but i think that it really comes from this idea that like you know, it, it's totally different watching something years after the fact on a rerun on UPN or something than it is like sitting down and being so excited to see how this, you know, thing that you've loved for the last ten years wrapped up and then just having it kind of shit all over you. Like that's a totally different uh, frame of mind to be going into the episode with. It was. It's the first time that I'm cognizant of me being critical of TV, and so I feel like that was sort of a turning point. Mm. In my sort of consumption of pop culture, where I didn't just, you know, watch it, but I was. You were judging it at the same time. Yeah. Like, 
I don't know. I felt like, I mean, I felt like I was owed something more. So I think what you're saying is that the uh, the basis of the uh, you know character that you bring to this podcast was born in the fires of the uh, Seinfeld series <laughs> finale. It very well could be. <laughs> That's when like your critical self was uh, <laughs> was born. <laughs> well, now I feel like crap for uh, disavowing because <laughs> of dream sex. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, before that, growing up, like, oh, the Power Rangers go. Jill, it would be pretty funny if you had never judged a single piece of art until that series finale of both. <laughs> it really like, made God me read like critical thinking skills. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, that's okay. Well, that's, that's a good pick. I was expecting somebody to bring that pick to the table. Um, I was for a while thinking of going with the season finale, uh, the series finale, rather, of Battlestar Galactica. Um, which I was quite disappointed with where when it aired, but actually over the years as I've rewatched uh, Battlestar, I've kind of come to peace with the the series finale, and and I actually don't know that it's quite fair to be so hard on it, considering um, yeah they were kind of flying by the seat of their pants, but they had also been developing the themes that they would bring out in that episode for the entire series, so I don't know why people were kind of so surprised. Um, so I've made my peace with the. Uh, with the last episode of, of Battlestar, and I, and I didn't choose it for this. What I am going to choose is the final episode of season two of Star Trek The Next Generation, which is called Shades of Grey. And um, this actually episode, weirdly enough, combines everything that bo- both of you hated about each of your picks. So it is a clip show. And in this clip show, Riker is put into a kind of induced coma... Um, because of a virus and they're stimulating different parts of his brain so he's remembering memories that are associated with certain emotions so they're like think of something sad and then you see a clip from that season of something sad that happened and then like think of something happy and then you see a thing that happened so the problem is so it's maybe it's not quite fair to blame the next generation writers for this because there was a writer's strike so they had to get a bunch of stuff done all at one time, and they got they you know they were trying to churn out episodes as fast as humanly uh, as it was humanly possible, and this was a way they could re- reuse old footage and stuff like that, and not have to write giant chunks of the uh, of the episode. But the problem was that season two is an abysmally bad season of Star Trek to begin with. So it has a couple good episodes, but overall the quality is very 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 low. Um, and so all of the things that we're flashing back to in this clip show are also bad. Like, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like, let's use our best stuff. Like, let's, uh, you know, let's, uh, give that stuff another life on TV here. It's just flashbacks to things that they themselves are bad and that most fans kind of wanted to forget about. So, um, you know, it, it, it had been a rough couple of seasons for Star Trek The Next Generation, um, in terms of quality and in terms of viewership, and then to come into this last episode of season two and see just a clip show of all of this bad stuff, it must have just been incredibly depressing going into that uh, that season break. Um, and, you know, I think that, honestly, maybe it wasn't Shades of Grey itself, but something happened because at the end of that season two, they fired a bunch of writers... Um, they took Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, off of 
uh, kind of his executive producing and kind of sidelined him a bit and brought in some other people to run things. And, you know, I don't know whether it was this episode in particular, but for some reason they decided they needed a shakeup. So I pulled up the uh, reception area for this episode on the uh, Star Trek wiki. <laughs> and it says, Maurice Hurley, who co-wrote the episode, commented, piece of shit. It was supposed to be a bottle show, terrible, just terrible, in a way to save some money. Other uh, producers are quoted as saying, um, I think it was the worst we ever did. It was like, never again do something like Shades. I don't even want to remember it. Oh my God. Likewise, wow. David Livingston also commented, it's very cheesy and fans didn't like it. We didn't like doing it, but Paramount said, hey, give us some money. And Ronald D. Moore in an AOL chat in 1997 called it embarrassing. Oh. Also, they shot all the new footage for it in three days. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, this is a legendarily bad episode, I guess. Wow. These are all public th- These are all public statements. This is from the special feature on the season two Blu-ray. And they're like, this episode sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> So much ado about nothing. We've been talking about this movie for a little while, Ryan, because uh, I, I feel like we mentioned it on the podcast before. Maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if it ever actually made it in. We've obviously talked about it a lot since we're both big Joss Whedon fans. Yeah, so Joss Whedon, you know, he gets done uh, he gets done shooting the Avengers. He it's about a month or so before he can uh, have the chance to go in into the editing room and start working on putting it together. He's supposed to go on vacation, and instead he shoots. Um, a low-budget, uh, kind of uh, under-the-radar adaptation of Much Do By Nothing in his own house um, with, like, apparently what are just all of his, all of his buddies. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I have a lot of opinions about this uh, film. Um, they're all very positive. Um, so before I start gushing, I'm interested to hear, you know, what you guys thought of it before, you know, whether you guys had the same reaction or similar reactions. I also really liked it. I really liked it. And um, it's kind of interesting. I have never read much about nothing. I have never seen an adaptation of it before. Oh, interesting. So I oh. am just coming in blind. Um, and I, I really liked it. Um, yeah. yeah. I liked it a lot. I liked the stripped down setting, the black and white. It's good. Right. Um, as you said, you know, he kind of took his vacation time right before entry and post production on the blockbuster Avengers to hang out at his house with these, his actor friends that he's worked with on countless TV projects and just shoot this adaptation of much ado about nothing. I think one of the things that came out most clear to me is it just looked like they were all really having fun with it. Mm -hmm. Like it, it reminded me so much of back when I was in high school and my friends and I would film something for like AP English mm-hmm. you know like this is our take on you know Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven <laughs> that's re- like I just felt like that that feeling came out so clearly that they weren't making a film that they were just filming themselves kind of goofing around it is it's a very joyful movie you know like it, it just feels like everyone's having fun um including even, you know, Whedon kind of behind the camera. Um, and it must be so nice. You know, he's he's been working on Avengers. He's been, uh, 
you know, shooting this thing where 95% of the work's in front of the green screen. He doesn't really know what it's going to look like. It's not really... It, it, it In some ways, making a movie like Avengers is not like uh, the type of filmmaking that Joss Whedon had ever done before, you know, where you have actors on a set and you can really see what's happening with them and and stuff like that. It's, it's a totally different craft almost. Um, and I think you can really sense how happy he is to be back you know, working with actors, doing the normal kind of um, work of, of putting a, a film like this together. It just, it seems like every frame of the movie is just like imbued with a, like an energy and a happiness. Um, and I do think everybody really attacks the roles with gusto. They like almost seem like they uh, like can't believe they're like good fortune to be taking on these like, <laughs> you know, these these iconic roles for this like hot director and like, you know, you know, these are not... With, with a couple of exceptions and not super famous people. These are like TV character actors for the most part. So, um, you know, they just seem like they're just so happy to like even be involved, if that makes any sense. They're like, yes, thank you for asking me. Um, so uh, I, it's interesting that you hadn't read the the play or, or seen another adaptation. Um, back in high school, I, I read the play and uh, watched the Kenneth Branagh version, which isn't bad, but it is a very straightforward shakespearean adaptation it's set on a you know villa in italy which is where the play mentions that this takes place um Mm. everyone's dressed in period costume everyone is like you know it's a very very straightforward adaptation of of a shakespeare play this is not at all a straightforward adaptation of a shakespeare play and it's kind of amazing that it all works you know that he can take the the kind of language and everything and just transplant it to a modern day setting I, I was shocked at how well that worked actually right yeah and I, I never I mean having never read the play too I was shocked by how modern the whole setup of the, like barring a couple sort of really um, archaic kind of ideas mm-hmm. it's um, <laughs> the the uh, the language and the scenarios are like you know Oh man, he said. He said. She said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea of fighting attraction. It just the entire play itself seems rooted in, or it seems to have you know modern interpretations, or it seems to be pretty open to the idea of a modern interpretation. So um, it was pretty neat. When I came out of the film, I wrote down a list of of uh, things that I um, like. Like, how did Joss Whedon make Shakespeare work in the modern context? Like, what are the th- specific things that he did that made um made this all work and i think first of all and the huge decision that he made that helps immensely is that he um he didn't have the actors be all shakespeare about it you know like no. they're not you know doing their you know iambic pentameter you know classically trained dialogue style monologuing on a stage or anything like that you know they, they're they're being um natural and warm and it just makes that that dialogue come off so much easier and it makes the story flow better in my opinion um than having people you know up there saying things in kind of that loud you know i am a shakespearean actor type you know intonation and stuff like that right Um, and i think everybody does really well with that in ways that i'm it must have been a challenging thing to, to pull off to memorize these lines and then also to say these you know these these lines that are are not written for you to be able to just casually kind of you know dash them off um 
so that that's the first thing. And then I, I think the second thing that he did that was so important was he found the laughs uh, between the lines. So, yeah. it, you know, this is obviously a very witty play. It's a very funny play. But the biggest laughs were not the lines. It was, you know, the look on Amy Acker's face as she falls down the stairs with that thing of laundry or... Um, you know, when, or that room setting, <laughs> <laughs> or like yeah, when when uh, when uh, Benedict is like having his like very serious monologue, and he's sitting in this room full of like children's toys on like a tiny little uh, chair next to a dollhouse, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> like it, this, there there are a lot of line, a lot of laughs in here that are that are kind of added in. Um, between the actual lines um and sometimes they even solve problems that the lines themselves bring up so like at the end of the film you know uh uh claudio is talking about how much uh you know how you know because he feels so bad for having besmirched uh the honor of uh of hero he would marry anybody even if she were an ethiop which is this really uncomfortable line in every adaptation of much do about nothing ever but they cut to this perfect shot of reed diamond as don pedro being like whoa did you say that dude why did you do that and this is like totally like disarms the line and, and makes it like and it's just a look it's just a you know but um that i think was was hugely important in making this something that people actually like wanted to sit through and and wanted to watch is is all those uh kind of laughs between between what's actually on the page yeah uh yeah yeah i mean they brought a lot of like physicality mm-hmm to mm-hmm. to this, which makes it much. I mean, just visually, it keeps you engaged. And I, um, and I mean, I noticed myself like the very beginning of the film. I had to really focus on understanding their their dialogue, mm-hmm. just because of the style. But as it went on, I think it it came in. I I was kind of surprised at how much easier it was for me to to absorb it as the movie went on. I think that's very true. Like I, you know, uh, I, I found a, a very similar thing where, like, for the first couple scenes, you're like, "Wow, this is going to be tough." Like, like you, you just kind of have to focus. You're like, <laughs> but at, at some point, it feels like you kind of slip into like uh, when you're like watching a movie with subtitles, where you forget that you're actually reading because you're like drawn into the story and the performances and stuff like that. Um, and you, I stopped thinking about it uh, uh, a little ways through. Exactly. Until you kind of realize what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tone. I mean, this is where having it performed is pretty key. I mean, tone can basically almost, I mean, the words are almost secondary sometimes. Yeah. Um, depending on, I mean, if you have a gifted actor, which, man, this cast, right? This cast is out of the They're world. really good. Um, so, first of all, I think the most important roles in the play are actually Beatrice and Benedict. And actually, I think Whedon acknowledges, like, visually if nothing else that they are the main characters of the story oh like, yeah really like you know claudio and hero are like the 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 uh um purportedly the main characters but ostensibly but I, th- I think even before before this benedict and beatrice had taken front and center yeah because, in other adaptations because their their romance is so much better than Claudio, Claudio and Hero, they just they're just basically like an arranged marriage. Um, they don't know each other. They don't, you know, we don't have a ton of. Claudio's kind of a douchebag. Um, we don't have a lot of buy into that relationship. But Beatrice and Benedict seems like so earned uh, of a this, of a romantic relationship. Exactly, because there's mm-hmm. tension, and I don't know. Yeah, and Acker and Alexis Denisoff are so good in those two roles. Um, 
both in the kind of physical comedy stuff that we were talking about earlier, like, you know, Benedict, like, rolling around on the ground behind... Behind that shrub. Behind <laughs> that shrub, yeah. but the three people are, like, talking about Beatrice in front of him um, and stuff. But they also nailed the dramatic stuff, like that, uh, you know, that scene where Beatrice is railing and she's like, you know, were I a man, like, I'm basically railing against the role of, of women in this society, like, is really powerful. Like, it works really well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, really, I think that Nathan Fillion kind of waltzes into the movie and, and walks away with it. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of surprised at how, like, he's, like, I think the third name that they show in the, the opening credits. Mm-hmm. I was like, I mean, Dogberry has always kind of been, like, one of the most note- memorable characters, but. That still seems a little presumptuous. Yeah, to put him ahead of all of these. And I, mean, I guess even Nathan Fillion's kind of a bigger name yeah. than say Fran Kranz or Clark Gregg. But still, I mean, Dogberry's kind of a small. Well, I mean, he's only on screen for maybe you know ten minutes. Ten a minutes, or yeah. Like that. But he, God, he really did just steal <laughs> every scene he was in. <laughs> well, and, and again, like again, like why did Dogberry work in this? He's a very divisive character. Uh, among like Shakespeare fans, like some people think he's hilarious, and some people think he's like, you know, uh, really annoying, and should just like get out of the way so that the story can keep going. And I think the reason why he comes off as annoying is that a lot of the times they like really linger on all of his like malapropisms. They like you know he says them like really loudly and then like pauses for a laugh and stuff like that. And in this one, like Dogberry doesn't do that at all. Like all of the comedy of Nathan of of the it comes from like the physical performance and he kind of glosses over all of the lines where he's using, um, you know, the, all the words incorrectly and stuff like that. So you maybe only, maybe you don't notice all of them. Maybe you only notice half of them, but they're all still funny. Oh yeah. I wanted to register. I didn't even understand that was happening until he was like halfway through his first, uh, (laughs) like monologue. And that I was like, what is, I don't even understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. Um, but I'm like, but I'm pretty sure they're wrong. (laughs) Like I think, uh, yeah. So it actually, it did, uh, it took me kind of a little, little bit of time to pick up on that yeah i mean yeah they because i mean they do call malapropisms dogberryisms in some circles Mm -hmm. (laughs) really yeah (laughs) um but you know when even if you even though he's kind of glossing over these very famous um you know these very famous jokes like what he's still just hilarious because he's got that funny wide like sideways tie and like this frumpy <laughs> suit on he just moves around all funny he tries to put on another dude's jacket like oh yeah it's just i didn't i didn't I, like i don't even know what is funny about it but there's something hilarious about the way that um and they've got the you know they've got uh the two guys that they've uh who what's the name of these characters there's the the gender switcher uh conrad um oh yeah They've got Conrad and uh, what's the name of the uh, flowery-haired guy? The accomplice. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, Baracchio. 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 They've got, you know, they've got the two of them like in handcuffs or whatever, and they're explaining to Don Pedro um, or Don John, I can't remember, like what they've done. And at one point, he just like kind of leans into frame, and he's like, "This one called me an ass." Mark it down. Days ago. <laughs> yeah. like, like the, just something about the way that Nathan Fillion just kind of like leans behind him into frame and just like kind of like he's all sideways and he's like this one. He like points down at his head. Like I don't even know what's funny about that, but it's so funny. <laughs> um, 
So he's he just his performance in the movie is just like awesome. I was sad whenever he would leave the the uh the frame, even if he, he usually did do it with a very uh nice kind of um sunglass. Uh, when they locked themselves out of the car. <laughs> oh yeah. That was awesome. They just look at each other like mm, damn it. <laughs> Oh yeah, or like the little you know little touch-ups that he tried to do when he was in front of uh, you know the nobles and stuff, or trying to make it seem like he was smarter than he was, and mm. um, yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, but I, th- I think you're right that there really isn't anybody bad here. Um, you know, Clark Gregg is great as uh, Leonardo. Um, I Reed I really is great wonder how uh, Anthony Head would have done as Leonardo. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Oh, probably awesome. <laughs> I, I am a terrible weed knight, and I have not watched much Buffy at all. I thought you'd seen the first season. I've seen, I think I've seen most of the first season. I'm not even oh, sure okay. I've seen all the first season. So I, I could have sworn you started watching the first season of Buffy before I did. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll start watching it. And then at one point, we were kind of synced up. Yeah, but then I never And then I just kept going. <laughs> so I don't have that strong of an attachment to Anthony Head. He's always just kind of looked like, uh, you know, like a, that dude who looks like Kelsey Grammer or a John Lithgow, maybe. Oh, like a John Lithgow. I can kind of see that. Yeah. yeah, maybe. So I was happy to see Clark Gregg in it, but I'm sure that. Uh, oh, I mean, I love Clark Gregg. Yeah, Clark actually, Clark Gregg uh, was one of my favorites, probably. <laughs> uh, Sean Maher, Mar Mar. Oh, he was. He might be the link, weak link. He, I, I thought think he was he, kind of forgettable. Well, Don, Don John kind of is a small role. Yeah, it's, it's, it's small, but eh. he he does some good stuff with it at the beginning. I thought that his first scene with Conrad, where they're like, you know, kind of getting it on, but also kind of like evil monologuing. Um was was pretty good but then he doesn't really just, he he might be the weak link in the movie sadly as much as i love him from our firefly days but i just i i just don't think there was enough for him to do to make a fair judgment yeah don john does kind of disappear from the movie uh or from the play rather and he's yeah. even kind of captured off screen right well because i mean his character is really there only to set up uh the the conflict of the other characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I still don't really understand his motivation. <laughs> I think he's just a, he's, he, when they were monologuing, he was like, I don't know, for funsies. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he doesn't really like his brother. And so he wants to cause trouble for him. He's but like a I Joker mean, style. Uh, some men just want to watch the world burn kind of dude. <laughs> yeah, I guess he just wants to create havoc because he's a douchebag. <laughs> but I mean, I don't. I don't think that's uh, Sean Mayer's fault necessarily. No, I mean, I he, he, did, he did fine. He glowered appropriately. <laughs> um, glower? Yeah. Glower? How do you say glower. that? Word? I think it is glower. Glower? I think it might be he he stares. He has a brooding stare. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a big mean jerk. Yeah, he does. How did you guys feel about? Um, so, like, okay, I wasn't during the the wedding scene. I was like, oh no, are they upset because like? She was kissing another dude, and she's been unfaithful. Oh no, it's because she's not a virgin. Bummer. Um, it, I, I understand it was like a pretty, otherwise very faithful adaptation, and and um, you know, there's really not a whole lot of skirting around a scene like that or mm-hmm. a setup like that. Um, it it struck me as kind of odd, though. I was kind of confused because isn't the very first scene 
Beatrice and uh, Benedict have a prior sexual relationship. Um, and basically, you know, Hero is accused of doing the same and and uh, basically should just kill herself. Like, uh, um, the those two ideas kind of seem to contradict to me. I don't uh, really know why it was such a big deal that Hero be a... A virgin and and uh, and Beatrice not though I right. think well I don't know I don't remember the play well enough I know that a lot of the sex and the flashbacks and stuff like that maybe we didn't add it in you know or maybe it was not supposed to be like kind of public knowledge or something like that because you know there's no line they say like I know you for a long time but I'm I don't know whether they're supposed to whether Beatrice and Benedict in the play are as strongly implied to have had uh like a sexual encounter before mm. um and i know i'm I'm definitely no shakespeare like scholar at all but i know that there's a lot of like uh argument a lot of arguments inside like you know whether or not what shakespeare is satirizing or kind of um endorsing these kind of gender roles and stuff like that um in terms of like you know the fact that they're horrible and weird and, and uh, <laughs> make everyone's character motivation totally be out of whack where you know it, literally everything that is important about hero is whether or not she's had sex with somebody else nothing about her character or her person or anything like that um in fact it, hero is not even wooed by the person who <laughs> she's eventually gonna marry right <laughs> um but uh you know i think that this um adaptation comes down very much on the side of kind of like uh satirizing or, or at least indicting um those attitudes but it does make for kind of a weird i think that's a place where the language actually really helps because if you adapt to the story but not the language and you just give all these people modern speech it would this would be a horrifying movie <laughs> and so, like keeping the yeah. speech the way it is you know allows us to um allows us to remember that this is like a really old and you know we have to make uh account we have to account for the you know culture at the time that it was written and then you know at the same time we get to enjoy it like we enjoy modern films and and have all the conventions of modern filmmaking without having to have everybody be in silly costumes and stuff Mm. but i don't have an answer for you i don't i really understand why it was so much more of a big deal for for uh hero than it was for for beatrice Mm. I was a l- I was a little bit surprised at how much I liked it. I, in all honesty, I was expecting it to be kind of a disappointment. Because um, I'm, I'm I'm not a big Shakespeare guy. I'm especially not a big um, Shakespeare on film guy. Because usually it just doesn't work very well. Either it's you know it, it, so much uh, reverence is paid to the language that y- they're almost never like particularly well made movies. Like you know like. The Kenneth Branagh versions are fine, but there's, like, no visual or kind of directorial stamp on those films at all. It's, like, point the camera at these characters, and in, like, a medium shot, they'll say their lines. Um, mm-hmm. At least for much ado about anything. I haven't seen his other Shakespeare films, so maybe I'm being unfair. But, um... <laughs> uh, no, I think that's fair. I've seen, um... I've seen, uh... The Hamlet. The Kenneth Branagh Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much gels with... Uh, what I remember from that movie. It is a lot of uh, camera on character, character delivers speech. Exactly. Exempt. Exactly. And then, you know, the other example of Shakespeare in the modern context that we have is Romeo plus Juliet, of Romeo 
uh, yeah. Juliet by the Baz Luhrmann, seminal film, film, which is like, you know, it's 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 a lot like this film in some ways, where it's like you know, uh, speaking in Shakespearean language, modern technology and setting, um, but it's obviously a totally different uh, style of movie in yeah, it's almost like a single age way. Cap that they have to work around. Yeah, Baz Luhrmann seemed to take the the approach that. Shakespeare's language was like too boring and that you know what he needed to do was jazz up the rest of the film around it with like crazy camera shots and you know yeah dollars sure. and music and <laughs> colors and stuff like that uh whereas we kind of dialed everything way down and and made it just uh, a very unassuming film I think it's crazy he composed the score oh yeah the score is awesome it was really um, good because like there's there's um there's songs in the play right like the mm-hmm. I think Sleep No More is a is an actual yeah yeah uh they devote lines to it in the play mm-hmm. um and uh, the way it was kind of like slowly wafting over that party scene which was gorgeous um yeah it was the whole the whole the whole um I guess cinematography is what I'm talking about here now um it made it all seem very dreamlike and just. Everything, you know, seems so pleasant, and, and um, it almost did seem kind of surreal, mm-hmm. uh, a setup. I think um, that the black and white, uh, the black and white aspect was brilliant for a, a couple of reasons. Um, I think it was brilliant from a practical perspective because when you film in black and white with that super high contrast, you know, you, you hide, a, you don't have to have as good of sets, you don't have to have uh, as good a color correction or, or anything like that. Like you, you hide a lot of the imperfections in the actual just what's in front of the screen. So it, I think that's the only reason why you can just shoot a movie like this just in his house randomly is because, you know, he's not using one of these giant IMAX cameras that picks up every single thing that's in the frame. It's a black and white camera. There's a lot of information, like visual information that's uh, discarded because it's, you know, it's not color. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't need any of that stuff. Um, and so just from a visual perspective, I have a feeling that went a long way toward them being able to do this movie so cheaply and so easily is that you know everything didn't have to look so good um because it's gonna be a black and white um i also yeah. think that having that um first of all it harkens back to um you know uh, older films that maybe whedon wants to call to mind um and it also kind of gives this layer like an additional layer of coldness or or an additional kind of um yeah, you're right, Jill. It is very dreamlike, where it kind of it 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 pushes you away to make you focus a little bit more. If that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it just looks beautiful. Like it just looks really nice. Yeah. Um, the high contrasting shadows across everybody's faces and stuff. And there's a ridiculously good looking cast. Oh yeah. <laughs> Everybody on screen just looks ridiculously good looking. Um, <laughs> it's like kind of funny. <laughs> Except actually Nathan Fillion, who is a little poorly since he's Captain Malbay. The, the years go by and he gets doyer and I get sadder. <laughs> Getting old, whatever. Oh. Fine. Yeah. I know it's fine, but I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> I mean, he would have a tough time fitting into that uh, into that uh, Captain Mal suit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> um. I do think that movie is an interesting example of... I can't find a number for what the... Um, for what the budget was. And there might not be one because I think it was all pretty... It was financed pretty close to the chest. Yeah, I think so. 
Um, but I do wonder whether we're going to be seeing more, um, more kind of, uh, movies like this one and it, you know it's it's made by a big director but it's a very small movie and it's very cheap and it, that it didn't used to be as possible without you know digital editing and digital photography and stuff like that um and this movie was shot on a consumer camera that anyone literally anyone could buy um i don't know i just think it's really interesting i i wonder what um you know, a lot of directors take this like one for them, one for me kind of uh, approach to making films. I think um, I'm thinking of like Steven Soderbergh, who would make like a weird little indie movie about like you know starring Sasha Gray about uh, you know a call girl um, mm-hmm. that no one would see, and then he would turn around and he would make uh, you know another Ocean's movie, and then that would let him finance the next weird little thing that he wanted to make. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether it's getting easier to finance those weird little things that, uh, you know, directors I mean, just want to do on a whim. I mean, I'm sure it is, but I, I think that Joss's connection to all of these people made it infinitely easier to get this project off the ground. That's probably true. I'm, I'm sure these people did this movie for, like, nothing. All right, anything else on uh, Much Ado? Uh, I'm good. No, but yeah, I think that's it. It's nice to talk about nice things. <laughs> the question is, is, it, is it interesting? <laughs> Jill, was it you who was it you who told us that it's uh, more boring when we agree a lot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did say that. She, she, did say I, that. I or, she actually she said she said in a much nicer way. She said the the most interesting stuff we do is when we argue about things mm. or when we're really mean and critical about things. Yeah, that is kind of fun here. And there is a lot of fun. Uh, in tearing something to shreds because it sucks so bad um but there's also a lot of fun in watching something that just makes you happy i think that's that's the other thing i really appreciated about uh um this movie and we talked about this on the podcast a couple weeks ago ryan um where like we were talking about how all television right now has to be just incredibly depressing right uh and dark and like it seems like just it just seems like dark and gritty are the two like best keywords that people want to describe to every piece of pop culture nowadays from superman to you know mad men and it was like it's nice to have a movie whose like entire purpose is just to be as delightful as relentlessly delightful as possible um and make your hour and a half past past like you know as happily as humanly possible I, i like that a lot yeah the town of chester's mill Trapped under a dome. Nobody can get out. Nobody can get in. 2,000 people secluded. It just gets pretty scary very quickly. We're so used to all these things working. All that's stripped away. And now people's true selves are going to come out. So I'm curious to see, you know, I read the book a couple years ago when it came out. And I've also read a lot of uh, Stephen King stuff over the years. I... uh, read probably most of his published books and uh, a lot of his short stories i'm curious most? you know going really? go- very prolific i'm impressed yeah I, you know oddly enough the only thing that i think i haven't read is any of the gunslinger series but um i think i've read almost all of his other novels um let, let, let me let me let me bring up his bibliography so did you read the talisman i have not read the talisman Okay, I haven't read any of the ones the that I have not read the ones that he wrote with Peter Straub with Peter Straub. 
The Eyes of the Dragon. I have read Eyes of the Dragon. Dolores Claiborne. I have read Dolores Claiborne. Interesting. The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. Mm-hmm. Let me see. I can tell you all, based on this list which ones I have not read. I have not read um, Firestarter. Oh, that's interesting. Cycle of the Werewolf. Uh, the Tommyknockers. Well, that's also interesting. Uh, or Insomnia. I feel like Firestarter and the Tommyknockers are bigger titles than a lot of them. And then he's published a couple in the last few years that I did not know he published. So I have not read Colorado Kid, Duma Key, Blockade Billy, or uh, his newest 111163. Um, no, there's one came out this summer, right? Joyland? I Joyland. don't remember that one either. Yeah. I, remember, I remember when Duma Key came out. I feel like Duma Key was kind of big. I don't remember Duma Key at all. I remember Lizzie's story, and I remember uh, Under the Dome, but I don't remember Duma Key. Anyway, um, I have read a lot of Stephen King books. And I'm wondering, are you guys, like, Stephen King fans? Are you not Stephen King fans? Had you read Under the Dome? Like, what was your kind of context coming into this uh, TV series? Um, Actually, I read Under the Dome... uh, Sort of recently. Yeah, it was... Maybe a year ago? A few months ago. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd say it's less than a year, but probably more than a few months. So, in between that nebulous amount of time. So, fairly recently. Mm Yeah. and it was actually my first Stephen King novel that I read. So, have you uh, read anything since? No, <laughs> it obviously did not draw you into his style. Uh, and, uh... Well, you know, I, I didn't mind it. I actually, I loved Under the Dome. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I mean, to be fair, like Under the Dome is big and long. So it is big and long. I can see you needing go. a break. Yeah, um, I mean, certainly, I, I would. I would read other books by Stephen King. And actually, I heard that 112263 was really good. So I might move on to that one next. Um, and also, I mean, it's such a kind of a long list of books to get around to. And, and you know, I'd be inclined to pick the ones that are famous, you know, have famous movie adaptations just because I feel like those are the books to read. But that mm-hmm. seems like it might not be the best way to go about it. Um, but yeah, so first book, first experience with Stephen King, um, and it was very good. So I came in, I came into this uh, TV adaptation pretty excited about what they were going to do. Interesting, uh, Ryan. Um, I mean, I've I've read maybe not as many as you, but I've read The Stand. I read It. I read Bag of Bones. Bag of Bones is actually probably my favorite Stephen King book. Bag of Bones is pretty good. I remember I remember seeing Cell and being like, no, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did you read Cell? Oh, you did, didn't you? I have read Cell, yeah. Cause I remember because I think you had it in in our dorm maybe, I guess, sophomore year? It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. It was no stupider than many, many Stephen King <laughs> books. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I just remember like when I saw it. I'm just like, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Putting you back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, and I mean, obviously, I've seen a few of the movies based on his works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm familiar. Interesting. Okay. I, w- I wouldn't say I, I take it as far as you do, though. Had, had you read Under the Dome? I have not. Um, I did, however, in preparation for this... Uh, sort of spoil myself on the synopsis. Okay. Okay. You know, I've, in his uh, book on writing, 
which is called on writing um he talked a little bit about his um you know his strategy for writing novels and he, what he basically likes to do is he comes up with a situation like a scenario um to start with and then he kind of uh invents some characters and he kind of sets the characters into the scenario and sees what they do like he doesn't go in with like an outline or anything like that it kind of he likes to let it um grow organically um and that works sometimes and really really doesn't work other times um and there are a couple of his books where you just kind of like get kind of toward the end and then it's just like oh shit this book has got to end somewhere i guess um <laughs> this is why um the worst one i can think of for that is a uh, dream uh, dream catcher which is like eh, i need a, i need an ending let's just uh, stick something in here um so uh, you know under the dome worked a little bit better than many of them but i do think that it has all the hallmarks of his like traditional style of like man wouldn't it be crazy if it just a whole town was just covered in a dome and let's see, like, who lives in this town? There's, like, a newspaper editor woman. Uh, there's, a, like, a drifter army guy. There's a used car salesman slash town councilman. And, uh, you know, kindly old sheriff. Perfect. Let's go and see what happens. Um, and so, like, that's kind of my impression of the book is, like, you know, it, I think it's a little bit of it's a little bit improvisational. So I think it's a fascinating book for them to adapt into a... Um, a TV series because I feel like there's actually quite a lot that they could do to change the plot here um, without really having an effect on like the essential core of what the story is supposed to be about, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Like That was actually yeah. one of the things that I was really excited about seeing because the characters in Under the Dome aren't super memorable. Mm-hmm. Like Even the ones that are, you know, some of the characters are just so in-your-face evil. You know, they're mm-hmm. either in your face you know stand up people um and it just it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of nuance to be had there i mean really the under the dome sold me on on um you know like situational uh Mm -hmm. themes and stuff uh you know and, and it's kind of nice to see you know what happens um in a small town that's kind of brought to the brink of despair um Mm-hmm. But uh, and I agree that the ending did kind of seem rather abrupt. Um, but I think I think the the overall tone works really well. And I think that just using the tone of the book and just carrying that over into a TV series that could go in a lot of different directions, just and, and still remain faithful to the book by kind of maintaining that that same kind of tone and small town feel. And um, so I actually I, I think it's perfect for for a TV adaptation. Yeah, and in this in this first episode, in this pilot episode, they play it pretty straight. You know, it follows pretty much. You know, they make some changes here and there. There's a little bit more going on with uh, the main character Barbie um, than there was. He's a little bit more ambiguous. He's bearing a body in the first uh, first uh, scene. I don't think that was in the book. Um, but they do play it pretty straight. But if they're going to turn this into a TV series, where it was originally going to be a miniseries, but now it's actually right. a TV series, um, right. then at some point they're going to have to start making uh, some pretty big breaks um, with the book. I mean, so let's talk a little bit about this first episode. I thought it worked pretty pretty well. Like it, It's got a really great pace to it. They make the very good decision to not stretch out the time before the dome comes down. I actually noted, I think the dome comes down 7 minutes and 40 seconds through the episode or something like that. Like, they didn't... They, they, I feel like they could have spent this whole episode like introducing us to people and doing stuff like that and then at the very end of the episode have the dome come down. It's like, nope. This TV series is called Under the Dome. We're putting these people under the dome right away. Um, I think that worked pretty well. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
it's suspenseful. It's a little bit gory, honestly. Surprisingly gory. Um, yeah. And it, it's yeah. just kind of fun and kind of sweeps you along. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I did too. Um, yeah, I I thought it did kind of move along pretty snappily. I don't really have a, a an opinion. Like, I was kind of shocked that they, they did put the dome... Um, uh, you know, around the characters right away, mm-hmm. but it seemed like in the book. I mean, it was pretty much there from the get go. Um, so there's really not a lot of, yeah. I mean, uh, we don't really want to have an entire episode basically just learning who the characters are because there are so many. It would be, you know, <laughs> just a huge undertaking. Um, so yeah, I I loved it. I I, I think I really did. Uh, I really did like it. I saw it twice, and I actually think it improved in the second mm-hmm. second go around. Interesting. Um. I mean, I thought it was fine. Uh, There's something about it when I was watching it that didn't feel like that made me didn't feel like I was watching uh, uh, a major network pilot. I don't know what it was, but it felt more like uh, either a cable or like one of the. Net, like a Netflix original. It's something about the production values or something. I don't know what it was. I will say the plane crash was kind of cheesy looking, or it looked kind of silly. Actually, I, I thought think. it was weird because it, you know it, it, it was quite a big budget. I have a feeling for this episode. I, uh, I, don't, I haven't yeah, seen any numbers, I think but so too. Um, and I found the special effects to be kind of all over the map. Like, there was some stuff that looked great. Like, I thought yeah. the truck smashing into the dome looked awesome. Like, it just crumpled up like that, and I just thought that was, like, perfect. And, uh, you know, some stuff um, some stuff looked really, really good, but you're, I think you're right that the plane crash did look just, you know, a little bit cheesy, and, like, they just kind of photoshopped it in there. Yeah. Um so I, I, I don't know. What, I don't know quite what that's about. Maybe it's a directing thing. Maybe it's that they ran out of their SFX budget like uh, three quarters of the way through, and they're like, "Gosh, <laughs> we haven't done that plane crash yet. Um, <laughs> let's just put something in there." But uh, you know, uh, it, w- it was a little bit all over the map. Although I didn't. I, I think that the acting is like uh, perfunctory and, and fine, but so far not super strong. I really liked uh, Rochelle Lefebvre. As uh, I think that's how you say her name, as Julia Shumway, as the the investigative reporter. But I thought that pretty much everybody else, um, with the possible exception of Dean Norris as Big Jim Rennie, was uh, was pretty uh, forgettable, at least so far. Uh, and whoever plays the creepy dude was appropriately creepy, I guess. The, the oh, son? actually, I had I had huge issues. I I think he just looks way too much like Andy Samberg, and <laughs> I just I cannot he get over. Like Andy Samberg, he looks like, he looks like <laughs> a weird combination of Andy Samberg and um uh crap, what's his face? Uh, um, James Franco to me. Oh yeah, sure. I can see that. Yeah, so like, not only does he look, I don't think he looks very threatening. I don't think. He is really good at selling threatening. I mean, he looks kind of puppy dog. I don't know. I just, he doesn't like look he, threatening, but he looks he looks weird. This this I do agree. Like when he's threatening, like a Barbie out in the field or whatever. I was like, give yeah, me a like, fucking sh- break. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I wasn't intended. I was like, uh, <laughs> that guy's yeah. gonna kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. And, I mean, yeah, and the character of Junior in the books is pretty. Um, 
I mean, he comes off as as menacing in the book, and I don't know. I'm not kind of really getting that here too much. Yeah. Um, although it, to me, the worst by far was uh, the kid who played the. Um like the now orphan the guy who finds him like in the field and he's got like a sister at home i think and like oh yeah and he that, that guy was horrible i was like this every line this guy says is just terrible wait is that the kid that has this seizure in the party or like when they're on the bridge or whatever uh, yeah. yes he, yes oh yeah that kid was <laughs> yeah he's not very good yes i didn't i didn't understand really who he was He's just a dude. He's just a nice guy who uh, befriends Barbie early in the uh, early Don't. in the season. I think. Okay. I think he's just uh, he's just a dude. Um. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it, not knowing how many changes they're going to make from the book, it's tough to say. But I was interested also at the people who they spend a lot of time with and the people who they didn't. Um. Well, I mean, the book is so long and has such a huge cast of characters doesn't it it does have a huge yeah cast of oh it's characters. huge there's like a glossary yeah. before the book even starts like well, i don't it's like think... a whole town like he, he basically wants to introduce you to like the whole town yeah um, and i just i don't think that's manageable in a tv series no me neither that's why i think it's interesting because yeah uh, you know the the people who we chose to spend some time with here are not at least in the first episode are not necessarily the people who i would have expected us to be spending a lot of time with right off the bat but people are already getting upset that it deviates from the book. Um, but, like, they've been pretty upfront about the changes. I mean, Stephen King has basically said, because he's, he's an executive producer on the show, and he basically had to write a letter um, to people who were really upset that they made all these changes and um, basically saying, <laughs> relax, it's a TV show. The book is still there if you want to read the book. Um, uh, yeah, because I guess some well, people are I taking. Mean, issue I think there on. there are two major things, and I it's weirdly sort of they go against each other that make that necessitate it being different. One we already touched on the fact that like it's moving to a TV series from a miniseries, mm-hmm. and so if they want to do a TV series, they can't follow the book because it's going to come to a natural conclusion following that outline and then what do they do after that yeah and i think i hope that I, I hope that this is not true but i think that's going to be what kills this if if indeed it turns out to not be a, a uh, successful venture i don't i don't I'm know what they're worried about that there. i could i could see i could really see it being sort of this the same situation as lost where they set up something that's really promising and then after a year or two you kind of figure out that they don't know quite how to keep it going mm-hmm well, and, and they're running out of steam. That's the thing is, like, is we're looking at a thirteen episode season, and honestly, thirteen episodes seems about right to me for the material that's in the book. Like, if you were gonna just do a straight like adaptation, you know, trimming out the fat that people don't necessarily want to see on TV, mm, organizing into a series of episodes, I could see you doing the whole book in thirteen episodes. But if we get to the end of episode thirteen and we're only a quarter or half way through the book and they're trying to stretch all that material out and they're keeping the conclusion of the book from us uh, I think people are going to be really frustrated I think it's going to be really like a, like a frustrating thing yeah so then that if you know if at the end of uh, episode 13 they do follow through to the conclusion that's in the book I can see a lot of places that they can go from there but um, 
I think they've actually already said that they are blatantly not going to be doing the ending. Oh, the they're just going to change everything. Yeah. I think Stephen King, I think they, they have him in to basically, um, basically consult. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure uh, from what I read this week that they are making it pretty public that they're going to change the ending. Interesting. Which will be interesting. Well, yeah, which is why I mean, I'm kind of... That's yeah, I mean, a part. Oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. It's, I'm um, just say I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited because it's, it is going to be different. Because so. I, I think you and I both agreed at the beginning that that's kind of the weakest part of the book. So, Yeah, by far. Interesting. I, you know, I, it's interesting because I, if you had to point to one series on TV right now that's really doing the adaptation thing right, uh, in my mind, it would definitely be Game of Thrones. You know, they're taking the books, they're following the blueprints, they're adding their own stuff where they feel like they have to and to keep things moving. They're consolidating characters where they have to. They're, you know, giving different characters more or less to do depending on how well the actors are portraying them and stuff like that. So there's a sense there that they're staying true to the books in terms of tone, if not necessarily in all of the details. And people have generally seemed like pretty on board with that. And so I think that if um, Under the Dome can sustain this tone that I think uh, they have managed to, you know, mimic pretty well from the book... um, I feel like they can do whatever they want to with the plot, but if they start, if it starts to feel like something that you couldn't even imagine being in the book, then I feel like then they run into some problems. Yeah. Wow! In the un, in the book, the dome is only over the thing for a week. I, I thought it was even less than a week. I didn't even not know that. It was like a couple days. Less than a week. Yeah. Wow. Because shit hits the fan like yeah, really like hard, really fast. fast. Although I feel like, like the I read what? the synopsis and I feel like everything that happened like for things to get that crazy like it had to be at least a month there is one event in the episode that basically like precipitate like kind of speeds up um uh basically brings about the climax uh and i wonder if that's going to be kept in too are we going to be are we avoiding book spoilers and in this conversation right now. I don't know. Well, I was kind of because you haven't read the book, but I don't know whether we should or should. Well, I already spoiled the book for myself, so I don't care. Hmm. Well, okay, let's talk about it and we can keep it in or not keep it in. Um, uh, well, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't mind. I just I want to know what you guys think. I mean, so in the book, basically, the radio DJ who we've seen a couple times um, is basically like a giant meth head. And yep. it, that's where I kind of... Uh, you know, I'm surprised that the book was only taking place over a week because I don't remember exactly, but it seems like his downfall takes a little while. Like, we keep cutting back to him, and every time he cut back to him in the book, like, he's just a little bit more tweaked out. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I felt like that took place. Well, maybe it was really only a couple of days. But, uh, you know, and so he eventually causes the final explosion that just totally... Like, one of the one of the interesting things is that the dome is not permeable even by air. So all of the pollution and stuff stays inside the dome and kind of just, you know... No, but I thought it... I, thought it, it's, I mean, it's like, it's kind of permeable. Like, water droplets can get through, but... Mm. Yeah, they have, like, giant fans pushing air into... Yeah, save that one kid. Yeah, you're right. But anyway, when the when the explosion happens, and it right. no, sends it turns all this into disgusting a, stuff. It makes it totally that, toxic and disgusting in there. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, it, that happens, I guess, pretty quickly. And so, I'll be interested to see how they deal with the air quality situation, and also like the character of Phil as they've introduced him so far. It was not at all how I I, I basically pictured him like being uh, 
like uh, Jesse from Breaking Bad in terms of like what he looks like and what he acts like, but he's just seems like a normal DJ so far. So also, I'm they've kind sure. of scrubbed clean a lot of the religious um, tones mm-hmm. of um, several of the town denizens. Like they they kind of cut out. It's like a Christian rock radio station, and mm, it basically right. spouts Jesus music all day long. And um, and Big Jim is kind of a religious nut and. Um, yeah, so they've kind of scrubbed that clean. The other thing that's interesting too is they, they seem to be scrubbing. It had kind of like political undertones, too, oh, yeah. or like like well, maybe not undertones, but like overt references to um, like the the paper that Julia ran was called the Democrat, yeah. and it was like a cute little joke in the book because she was a staunch Republican, and and now the newspaper, I think, in the TV show was called the Independent, which is kind of mm-hmm. cool. Um, so they seem to be kind of scrubbing some of that stuff out too, because um, it's not like it played a huge part in the book either. But it just um, it kind of had a different different uh, spiel uh, in the book as opposed to the TV show. I mean, and I, I there's also going to have to be, and these are probably the changes that are actually going to make people more upset than plot and continuity changes. And there's definitely going to have to be just content changes to get it onto a network TV station. Like the book, there's some pretty fucked up shit. There's a gang rape. There's oh, yeah. uh, necrophilia. There's all kinds of really uh, yeah. messed up stuff that you're just never going to be able to show on network television. Yeah. Um, I see those making people more angry um but also probably oh god i hope not <laughs> yeah, i would i would when you when you sanitize their stuff you know yes but yeah but i mean i mean it's gonna i mean i'm sure they're gonna be pushing the boundaries it seems like that's kind of gonna be a trend with network television is there i mean and they did slice like, that cow in half i was i was pretty shocked when they sliced that cow in half actually i, I like, wow yeah it's a gory thing to be on television yeah i think it's I think it's mildly disturbing um, as a reflection of myself that when I saw that, I was like, that is not what the inside of a cow would look like. Like, Oh, yeah. I also (laughs) did think that. I was like, okay. I was like, it's not just going to be like this giant red mess. Right. It looks like it looks like ground hamburger inside. Yeah. Now, I think that's what I was like. This is gross, but this is not what it should be. (laughs) I was like, this is mildly troublesome. (laughs) Why am I thinking like this? People are just going to walk around cutting up cows and... Let's make sure that we are, uh, you know, biologically correct. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, in in the book, I remember all this stuff taking much more time to, like, you know, Junior, who's the creepy dude who we talked about before, like, he has a brain tumor, I guess, in the book, and, you know, he gets uh, progressively more insane over time, so I think that the... the the kind of slide of those two characters, Phil, the meth head uh, DJ and Junior, um, were why I, I thought the book took place over more time. Um, it seemed like Junior kind of jumped a little bit here, where he went straight from like a uh, happy-go-lucky boyfriend uh, to like, yeah, to creepy, creepy like rape dungeon. Like, right? Oh my god, I was so bummed out. I was like, we're gonna get another rape dungeon? I'm so sick of rape dungeons. Like, they are just everywhere. And they all have this really sickly green tinge, and it's just, I'm sick of it. Aesthetically, as a plot device, I'm over it, TV. No more rape dungeons. You, you hear that? Jill is, is over She's rape dungeons. done with the rape dungeons. Where I'm else done. are there rape dungeons? I haven't seen rape dungeons recently. Okay, well, maybe not recently, but actually we do watch a lot of Criminal Minds, and it seems like every single episode features yeah. rape dungeons. That's kind of Criminal Minds. It's a little shtick. 
Yeah, it is, I guess. Um, I'm sure there's been more than one in SVU. Yeah. yeah. Damn you, Rape Dungeons. Yeah, so I was I was kind of surprised that they went so far with that character so fast. They just seem to be skipping straight to the end, where they're like, yeah, he's actually, he's not progressively getting more insane, he's just insane. Yeah. From the right, it, because uh, his girlfriend had the gall to suggest that uh didn't really want to be seeing him anymore. And she she got her, uh, she she accepted a cigarette or something, or a light from... Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. But it was a little... It was a little. I would I would have liked to see her sleep with somebody before he just throws her in a rape. I was like, give this character some decent motivation for being a crazy, uh, fucking psychopath. Yeah, yeah, they did do that awfully quick. Well, I got to introduce more people because if I remember the book correctly, lots of people die. Oh so yeah, we they need more characters just so they can kill them all. At the end of the paragraph, they yeah. they die. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I think it's that time of the show where we talk about our uh, time travel film of the week. Oh, hold on. I'm going to need to get another beer for this. <laughs> Sounds like someone didn't like Time Cop. In the year 2004, time travel is a reality. You are charged with violations of TEC code 40.8 time travel with intent to alter the future. And a crime. It turns out going back in time is a pretty easy way to make money. I think you got yourself a shipment of gold and you're taking a general So, uh, you know, you guys uh, may be shocked to learn these facts, but n- I had never seen Time Cop. Um, not only that, I had never heard of Time Cop. Not only that, I'm pretty sure that I've never seen a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie ever. Interesting. So I came into this with no idea of what I was going to see, and actually I realized when I started the movie that I had been confusing the premise with RoboCop. Um, oh. and the, all of the cast and crew also so I thought this was a Paul Verhoeven movie and it's not um, <laughs> no. so I had no I had no context or background for this movie at all <laughs> but I mean uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme was and why he was kind of famous for movies right? all I know is that he's an action hero oh okay like you know I'm on, on my like list my mental list of like big action heroes from the early 90s it's like for some reason i've got like stallone and schwarzenegger on one level and then like van damme and seagal on like another level of movies that i never watch that's no that's probably accurate i think that's pretty accurate okay i think that's pretty accurate yeah no definitely no he's you guys are both like well because i feel like and horrible we've never watched his movies schwarzenegger and uh uh stallone they're kind of on on this one level where they're like they're in action movies and they're like big stars. And then Seagal and Van Damme, they did these action movies that were kind of lower budget and used to, and they were used primarily as sort of like, like they had this martial arts training sort of. Yeah, they like had, yeah. their fighting skill was like a reason why they were, uh, were, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, low, they're like, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, coming into this movie, um, I didn't hate everything about it. In fact, I think one of the best, one of the better parts is uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme himself, who's like a pretty compelling uh, lead in this film. But on the other hand, like, let's not make any mistakes. Like, this is a really bad movie. <laughs> so I'm interested to hear your guys' history with this movie, and specifically why it was requested to be in the list of time travel films that well, we watch. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, like, I wouldn't say I'm a 
Jean-Claude Van Damme fan. I mean, but I definitely saw it as a kid because, you know, it, I, it does seem like growing. It, I was kind of surprised that it came out as late as 1994 mm-hmm. when I was watching it again. But like you can see, I think it's the sort of movie like a 12 year old boy would want to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like one of those things I probably saw like sleeping over at my friend's house when we were in fifth grade. So, Jill, it sounds like you've seen this movie more recently. I have. What's, what's your history with Time Cop? Uh, so, I saw this movie with my dad several years ago, more than several years ago, um, and saw it sort of somewhat recently, uh, again with him on cable television, uh, because my dad and I can only watch movies that he's seen over and over again, so we can fall asleep to them easily. Um, but, so I've seen Time Cop, uh, like, sort of re-saw it again somewhat recently, a couple years ago, and then... Um, kind of was reminded that it existed and that I remember really liking it. Uh, I mean, liking certain things about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually recommended it because I think it's cheesy and awesome. And um, I, I kind of really like Jean-Claude Van Damme a lot. <laughs> I think uh, his acting definitely leaves something to be desired. But he comes across like more than any of these sort of uh, sort of general male action stars as like kind of really earnest even when he's um playing you know like stoic badasses on screen and stuff he just kind of like he seems to be trying so hard and just (laughs) there's just always like a you know i'm I'm trying really hard here guys like and and in time cop 2 when you know he's trying to he does a lot of acting he like it requires him to to act more so than a lot of other movies that he Mm -hmm. does where he's just straight up like kicking people in the face um so I always kind of liked that he seemed to be, you know, really, I don't know, very rarely do you see Jean-Claude just like kind of checking out. Yeah. He always just seems like he's really intent on doing a good job. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a Van Damme. I, I'm a Van Damme fan. I, I, you know, I, like I said, I, I liked uh, him in this film. I thought he was pretty great. And even when he's being asked to deliver lines that are like patently <laughs> Like not just stupid, like scientifically, but just like stupid. Like when he like he, the, that that uh, thug is stealing the lady's purse on roller skates or whatever, and he just holds up his leg, like up there. <laughs> that is so. <laughs> Read it between the lines. <laughs> like yeah. what the fuck is that? Um, but he, I mean, he's great in this movie, and it is cheesy fun for the most part. I think it drags a little at the end. Um, kind of keeps, kind of goes on a little long. Um, but. Um, my other favorite part, I really, really liked Ron Silver as the uh, evil, uh, evil politician dude at m- multiple, you know, kind of places in time. Um, he's great. He's he's great in this movie, and he he's you know, Van Damme is is so ridiculous, and the whole movie is full of such like overacting, and then he's just he's he he dials it down. He's just cool, and and that's what makes him menacing. So I thought I thought he did a good job. Um, I also really like the part where his two cells fell into each other and became a gluey, uh, like, bloody monster thing. <laughs> it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, like, if you don't think about the movie and you just kind of watch it, I guess it's it's sort of enter- there's, it's entertaining at points, but... Uh, like nothing makes sense. Nothing is consistent. Uh, for the most part, the special effects look horrible. Um, <laughs> you don't I, like I, it when the you don't like it when the uh, 
metal car thing metal car thing goes into the little like a droplet of water kind of uh, ripple effect <laughs> to go back in time like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> but like i don't get so they have to use this weird car on a track that accelerates really fast to go back in time okay one where does that car go when they go back in time I have no idea. It just disappeared. <laughs> why did they have to put that wall at the end of it where if it goes wrong, they just smash into it? That seems like a bad idea. He's like such a dick to that one woman because she's like already so freaked out. And then she's like, what are those like smears of on the... Or she's like, what happens if we don't go back in time? And he's like, you just like become a smear on the wall. I'm like, wow, way to, <laughs> way to deal with her heart rate problems that they're talking about her having. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so many problems with this movie. And I mean, that that's fine, because it, it really is like a B-movie, B-camp movie. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I think they could have done two things that would have made the movie way better. Like, first of all, the stakes are not high enough. Like, this guy is trying to get money so that he can be rich in the future so that he can run for president so that he can buy the presidency and it's like if you had if you had a time machine and no compunction about changing history at all like you could, you could do way more than just make yourself really rich so that you can buy the presidency like well yeah i mean like weren't like the 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 first thing that happened in the beginning of the movie was like this dude stole money from the Confederate or gold from the Confederates to like buy nuclear weapons and yeah. yeah, like the Middle East. Yeah, that's way more terrifying than a dude. <laughs> so the stakes are, the stakes are <laughs> yeah, who seems low. like a jerk? Does not seem very stand up. <laughs> the stakes are pretty low. And then the other thing is that at the beginning, they're going back to all these cool places in time, and they have all this anachronistic, anachronistic shit, like you know, cool weapons and stuff. I'm like those are my favorite parts of the movie. That first scene with the Confederate guys, and then back in time in the 1930s or 1929, right before the stock market crash. Like I liked those parts a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought it was really weird because you're right. Both of those scenes, like from like a, a costume and like set design mm-hmm. point of view, they I feel like they did a really good job with that. Yeah, yeah. Look like a you look like a legitimate. A uh, period piece, but like, then, yeah. but then they just stop going back in time. Like they, they go back in time. And they spend most of the rest of their time in either the f- future or in uh, 1994. And everything and else looks ridiculous. Thought that was a little bit sad because um, I really liked those those original things. Also, I like how he sends him back, and he's like, "We can't let you stay here because, like, maybe you'll do something that'll alter the timeline." And then these other guys come in, and John Claude Van Damme just kicks the shit out of them. <laughs> it's like, you don't think that's going to alter the timeline? Like, what if you killed one of those dudes? For <laughs> someone whose job what it is I to believe what, that. Exactly. What I don't get is, like, he was the, the guy who was, like, stealing money from the stock market. Not stealing money from the stock market, but profiting from it. Was like, let me just die. And, like... He jumps out the window and Jean-Claude Van Damme is like, I can't let you do that. And they grabs him and then goes like back to the future and it is just like, oh, you're sentenced to death. And they just send him right back to falling to his death in the past. Like, what the hell? 
Also, I, I mean, the entire premise, like, and they, they kind of gloss this, they kind of gloss over this, sort of like in the way that they did with Looper, where it's just like time travel exists and some people use it wrong or whatever. Yeah. So here's kind of how time travel fits into this whole world. Um, and they kind of get that out of the way by saying, so, so time travel is like, is a thing, it exists, but some people use it to go back in time and mess up stuff. And it's this new TEC police force's job to police this stuff. But, like, I, who are these people that have, like, these big, huge, they have, like, warehouses where they keep those cars and that zoom them into the past or something? <laughs> like, we just don't get any sense of why this is a problem. Because it seems like, from the setup of the movie, that it's basically just, like, corrupt politicians that are buying up police officers that are doing this shit. So, like, yeah. why? I mean, it seems like this ineffectual police force. It creates its own goddamn problems. <laughs> well, also, the... Uh the place where they do all of this um, going back in time looks like a dump. Like, it's not a big, gleaming, <laughs> nice government facility. Like, well, I mean, they they did kind of hand, hand, hand to wave that away by saying, like, we are keeping the budget super low by yeah. buying nothing. But it also looks like a warehouse. Um, um, what was I going to say? I kept wondering where the people were from further in the future. It's like all through this movie, I anticipated that the end game, like the way that everything ended, was that somebody from even further in the future than Ron Silver was going to come back to stop all this mess from happening. You know what I mean? But then uh, that kept not happening. So, like, I guess they just, the, the only people who ever go back in time, go back in time in 2004 or whatever the future time well, like- is supposed to be. And see, that was, that was a major problem when you think about the plot of this film is that nothing is consistent. And hmm. that, um, so a lot of it is like, there's this, the main timeline going forward through the movie that Jean Claude Van Damme experiences. But so then, why did um, the, the thugs from the future initially attack him? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um,. Because if then, so you think uh, it's sort of uh, predetermined that this already happens, but you also see signs that things change by going in the past and affecting things. Hmm. So things are not predetermined. Things are, uh, I don't know, malleable. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it gets a scar and you know. Whatever. Life stays alive. Um, Whatever. And so, but so, like, and you see, like, when he initially comes back to the future and Ron Silver kind of won that first engagement and everything has changed and he, no one else realizes that the TEC is, like, completely different. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that c- makes the department completely ineffectual. Like, the whole concept, like, if they can't. If they don't have a point of comparison. If they can't... If they have no idea once something fails that they failed at it, there's, there's no way of fixing anything. Well, I mean, and then you get all, into all kinds of paradoxes and stuff like that, so, you know. If, if you go back and fix something and then you go back to the future and it's changed, does that mean that it was always going to have changed and which timeline is a real timeline and all that shit? Like, this movie is not... 
concerned with the uh, intricacies of time travel. No, it, it, yeah, that's why I say, like, if you think about it, nothing makes sense. Yeah. That's why if you don't think about it, it's kind of fun. Yeah, so I kind of kicks a dude. this movie beforehand, but then when I had to watch it for this podcast, it's like, wait a minute, oh my god, <laughs> this sucks, <laughs> terrible, look what you did to me, <laughs> you broke me. <laughs> I um, felt this way when I came out of, uh, just to go off on a very brief tangent, um, The Amazing Spider-Man last summer. Like mm. I, I saw that movie with all of my brothers, and I really hated it. And all of my brothers really liked it until we got out of the movie, and they asked me what I thought of it, and I told them, thinking they had also hated it. And they were like, "Man, I really liked this movie before. No, I don't like it at all." <laughs> like, oh, sorry. <laughs> so I should watch it. I still think. Yeah, wait, because I, I, I liked it. Oh, God, I, don't I hated ever- that movie so much. It was my second least favorite movie of last year after Prometheus. Wow. Ugh, no, Prometheus is very clear the winner of that yeah, but hatred. This was very definitely number two. One thing that I did really like about Time Cop um, is that they handled the reveal of the wife's pregnancy really well. Um, movies it do this thing sometimes that drives me up the fucking wall. It's like they can't trust us to remember that something happened, so they put the setup and the reveal too close together. You know what I'm? It, it, I can't. I'm trying to think of a real example of this, and I can't. But like, uh, I, see, I know what you're talking about. I see it all the time, where it's like, you know, there'll be like a character, and they'll be about to discover something about another character, like they're pregnant, or that they actually did love them before they died, or whatever. And there'll be a flashback right before they find out this crucial piece of information that sets up the piece of information, but it has no impact because they're like two minutes apart on screen. And it's like they can't, they don't think we can remember. And so this movie, it doesn't do that. It doesn't talk down to the audience in this particular way, where right in the very beginning of the movie, she says, like, I have something important to tell you. And then he leaves, and she never uh, gets a chance to tell him. And then they don't pick that plot thread up again for a long time. That's like an hour and 15 minutes later in the movie, when he finds that vial of her blood, and he's like, oh my god, she was pregnant. Um, But I mean, you didn't know that she was pregnant. No, I mean, you, I mean, you can read between the lines and you can get it, but I think that they did a pretty good job of withholding that information from the character until the time when it would do the maximum kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, damage to his uh, psyche, I, I guess. Was, that's fair. I was kind of, in that scene, that, that same scene where he finds out, I was always kind of confused as to why he just kind of, like, so, like, uh, Fielding is her name, mm-hmm. the, like the young agent that he works with. Um, and he's like, I need to take you back to testify against the senator. Um, but he also needs a vial of her blood for some reason. I, like somehow that just never really... Yeah, this is not times. I think he, he said he needed the vial of her blood to prove who she was, but that makes no sense But then don't make, you can just bring her back. What the hell? <laughs> and then he's like, oh crap, my wife's pregnant. And then he's going to go save her and basically like ruin time. Here's yeah. just, I just don't understand why all of a sudden he's compelled to basically do the thing that he's promised himself that he's not going to do for the past 10 years and basically just drop whatever it is he wanted the, the new agent to do. Well, to be and, fair, it's possible that he was going to take the new agent back once he got her blood, but then when he, he returns to her hospital room, she's all dead. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. And now he's like, fuck it all. Yeah, and, uh, and then I, th- I feel like at that point he's just like, whatever, the timeline's fucked anyway. Like, I well, might because well. like, his, his boss friend is dead, and mm-hmm. the only witness to uh, the corruption is dead, and then he finds out that his wife was actually pregnant. What I think is weird is, at the end of the movie... Um, you know, he comes back to yes, yes, the 20, yes. I'm 2004, so glad and it's like, hey, dad. It's like you don't know that fucking kid. He's like eight years old, and you don't know him. Like you have n- no memory of your life together. This is my same problem that I have with Back to the Future, where I was like, actually, at the end of this movie, Marty McFly comes back to a family that he doesn't know. They've had a bunch of experiences. They had lived totally different lives. Like, they didn't do any of the same stuff. And he's, like, so happy. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm back with my family. It's like, no, you're not. You're with a bunch of imposters who look like your right. family. We, 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 I, I think that's a little easier to swallow than a whole new person. <laughs> he's, like, because, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, like, what like if, your brother may not be your brother, but come on. Uh, yeah. It's like, no, they no, definitely no, no. share a kindred like, spirit because did you see that kid's hair? It's straight up bowl cut. And Jean-Claude Van Damme's hair is equally crazy. What with the mullet. Well, so. and the thing is that like, so there is, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out, I can't remember exactly how this worked in the movie, but there is a, there is a Jean-Claude Van Damme who has lived all that time. Like his past self, like, went through all that like it lived those 10 years with that kid right uh-huh. but then he just kind of magically replaced that self when he popped back into existence out of the vortex machine yes so like that that daddy is now gone and in uh, place you have a daddy who doesn't have any of those memories yes that's fucked up <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get that, that. That's a sort of philosophical question of whether you know the memories of some—not necessarily a person, but the memories of a thing—make it that thing, right? Isn't what? What is that? Um, the ship of Thebes—is that what it is? Mm, we've wandered out of my bailiwick. <laughs> so, like, like it's it's the the philosophical question of like. If you uh, like replace every part of a ship, is it still that same uh, ship? Oh, I see. Ship of Theseus, says Wikipedia. That's what it is. Uh, hmm. well, or if you build a new ship from those parts, from those old parts, is that the same ship or is it a completely different ship? Intriguing. And I don't think that's something that they they were aiming to tackle in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Entertainment Weekly did rate Time Cop as a underrated movie gem in a recent article. Would you guys agree that Time Cop is an underrated movie? Like, do you think that do you think that Time Cop occupies less or more or the correct amount of cultural uh, cachet at its current at this current point in time? Probably right around the right amount. I think Time Cop runs into the problem of where it straddles this line of either being a really good B-movie or a pretty poor like uh, blockbuster movie. So it's not Terminator, but it's also not bad enough to like enjoy for that purpose? Um, no, it, 
if you have like low enough expectations where you're like, I want to watch a bad movie. Like it's it's good for that. Hmm. But I mean, it it's um, and I mean it was Jean Claude Van Damme's biggest. Oh, by far. I think, and I think it tried to be like a legitimately big movie, mm-hmm. and it's not good enough to do that. Hmm. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. I think it. I mean, it, it it won't ever really be considered truly good. Do I think it's underrated? I do, actually. Uh, See, so yeah, that's where I don't. Um, I think it definitely has. Um, yeah, and it does occupy this kind of weird space between. I mean, it was. It was made on a pretty big budget. Um, they had some pretty solid acting talent, unlike a lot of his other films where across the board it tends to be pretty shaky. Um, yeah, and I even think the effects, you know, the effects are cheesy, but, you know, they're not, they're, I don't think they're, they're bottom of the barrel kind of stuff. Like, oh it doesn't really, no, I don't that, think it actually takes, takes me out of the movie at all. The green screen where he um, ends up almost run over by that. Uh, 18-wheeler truck <laughs> looks horrible. Oh, yeah, I do. It is like the worst green screen that I have seen in in an actual movie. Well, I like that apparently they have no actual method for um, like figuring out where someone is going to end up on the other side. Oh yeah, why they can travel through uh, through space too? I guess so. Like sometimes they like one time they fell into the water, and it's like, what if you just accidentally teleport them like underground, like literally just like into the ground, into the middle of a building, (laughs) like stuck in a wall. (laughs) Also, I I will say, oh yes, oh sorry, go ahead. Uh, One of my favorite parts of the film is that totally unnecessary CGI sex scene. Oh, yeah. So they're like, hey, guys, we need more tits in this movie. How can we get some more tits in this movie? How about this random dude is watching How about this nerd is looking at virtual porn? Yeah. <laughs> Nerds would do that because they can't get laid. Uh, I that was hilarious. Oh, and I did, I did also think it was funny that in the, the wrong alternate future where Ron Silver had won, like, the nerd is now wearing a suit. Oh, oh yeah. is he really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, hilarious. yeah. Yeah. Are and like, like yeah. in, in Jean Claude Van Damme's regular future, like he likes to be called Ricky, and in the the screwed up future, like, can you please call me Richard? Right. See, that's <laughs> that is the tragedy of this movie. That guy got his shit together. Yeah, he did. And he wasn't looking at poor anymore, and he was you know called Richard now, and he was you know, wearing suits and stuff, and he was probably had a nice apartment and maybe like a wife and stuff. And then nope, Jean Claude Van Damme just undid all mm. that shit. No, this is the '90s. It was super unhip to wear a suit <laughs> and be mad and not be called Ricky. Right. <laughs> um, but no, I think I think the reason why I do feel like I feel because uh, I've watched a lot of Jean Claude Van Damme movies, and I think that a lot of them are pretty disposable, pretty forgettable. Um, and this one, it has, like, all the hallmarks of a great Jean-Claude Van Damme and that the, the action is pretty good. Um, there's, I mean, he is capable, I mean, just uh, completely unrelated, this man is capable of a crazy, amazing feats. Um, mm-hmm. That split that he does over yeah, that was the, the water, it's amazing. I, um, I do think, like, um, that's true. He does a lot of great physical motions, but I think the fight choreography is horrible really um i think watching the i understand that there's probably a lot of hard work and training to do all of those things that they did and especially without you know ostensibly actually hurting anyone mm. but i think it looks really bad interesting because i think that kitchen scene was probably my my uh i think the kitchen scene looks good 
I didn't mind the fight choreography. Um, I did. Uh, I did think that they spent too much time in the final scene, especially like oh, how yeah. many dudes did they bring to this house? Because it takes it so long, and it just seems like they keep popping up again. Right, um, and it's kind of dark. You can't really see. It's kind of hard to see. Like yeah. that scene probably could have been staged yeah. better. But I did. I did like the scene between him and the knife dudes <laughs> in the kitchen and stuff. Yeah, how ineffectual can you use a knife? Um, but yeah, so I think I think in terms of um, I think it occupies kind of an interesting position between being like you know typical Jean Claude Van Damme fight movie and and it does have something a little more to recommend it. I mean the fact that we can even sit here and still be discussing this and it's a Jean Claude Van Damme movie is already pretty telling. I mean I, I uh, liked it. I, what yeah. I was uh, what I was sad about was that uh, that uh, we we didn't get a cheesy eighty style score. The score well, was, like, was made in 1994. I know, I know, but it seems like the kind of movie it, that should have it like really a looks like style it's, score. It looks like it's yeah, it's from like, that I, time I period. Think that's what would have made this movie perfect for me. <laughs> is if instead of having a normal kind of like you know lots of strings and Howard Shorestown and kind of you know it wasn't very good, but it wasn't like uh, uh, a crazy. Uh, I, I, I wanted some some synths in there. <laughs> um, did you guys? Uh, wait for the credits to hear the song that plays over the credits. It's bananas. What is um, this? I did not. I, uh, I have actually. Oh, it's called "Time Won't Let Me In." Uh, oh no, sorry, no. <laughs> time apparently will let you in. It just time won't let me. Um, it's like this poppy confection of a song. Um, and Madeline and I actually watched Time Cop, and and we kind of uh, we let the credits scroll for a little bit. It's a pretty crazy song it just does not mesh with the tone of this movie at all um it's really bizarre whoa it has its own music video does it with starring jean-claude van damme shut up shut up (laughs) Oh my lord! This is the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, you know what is really weird at the end of the movie is when he sees that that uh, internal affairs cop that who turned out to be dirty um, in the new future and who doesn't know him at all, and he makes that comment about um, that dude she lost her virginity to. I know, I was and like, she was like, so and she just like like smirks or something like, ah, ha, ha. and like when really, if someone said like, yo, that dude you banged when you were like fifteen, give him another shot, like that would creep the fuck out of anyone. <laughs> Especially since she tells him that he wasn't any good. Like, remember that horrible sex you had when you were like sixteen years old? Like, go give him another shot. Everybody's gotten better by now. And and she's just like, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> you crazy cuff cop. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> oh god. All right. Well, sorry. We uh, might have been a little harsh on your on your favorite movie. Deal. Favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, th- I think uh, you know my my uh, ego remains unbruised. I did really like it. I think I think it it is worthwhile. It's definitely yeah. like. It's a nice first, the first JCVD movie. I think it's worth it. Um, oh, so Madeline suggested. Did she suggest the Lake House? Is that she did? Yeah. So next week, or yeah, like next episode, we'll be talking about the Lake House. 
Knight, mm-hmm. starring Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, and a magical time traveling mailbox. Hooray! <laughs> really, the best kind of mailbox. Yeah. Well, maybe not because you probably have trouble getting your mail. <laughs> I know you get like IRS bills from, like ten years ago. 